I just uh, am reminded of, of the song, You Alone Belong, the Highest Praise. That fits right in with our theme, because our theme this morning is idolatry. Probably one of your favorite subjects. <laughs> it has been a concern for the people of God from the very beginning, even until now. And it was uh, certainly the, the uh, concern in the Reformers, uh, the Reformed family of faith. They weren't concerned so much about atheism, because everybody believed in God, but they were concerned about who was that God that these people were, were believing in. And so it's continued on down to today. Uh, certainly we should be concerned about idolatry. We see it in our text this morning, which is the golden calf text from Exodus chapter 32. But before we read our text, let's pause and ask for God's blessing and presence as we read and expound his word. Loving and gracious God, we look back in history and we know that from the very beginning of your uh, people, they gathered around the word in the synagogues. And then when the church began in these small house churches, they began to read your word with Old Testament and the letters from the apostles, and their faith was centered on that. And then as the Reformation came, it became uh, emphasis once again with uh, the Latin term sola scriptura, by scripture alone. That's how we come to faith, through scripture alone. And so we stand in that long tradition of bowing before your word to hear its word for us in this day. So open our ears to hear from you, open our hearts that we might be receptive to what we hear, and then give us the motivation to do what you call us to do. All of this we ask because we know that you're present with us, for it is in Christ our Lord's name that we pray. Amen. Exodus chapter 22, beginning at verse 1 through 15. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us. Who shall go before us for this Moses the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do, not, do, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on your ears, on the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. I noticed that the men weren't mentioned. I guess they didn't wear earrings back then. <laughs> so all of the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed in a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once. Your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn away aside from the way that I have commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf, and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. 
The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone, so that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. And of you I will make a great nation. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, It was with evil intent that they brought them out to kill them in the mountain and to consume them? He said, I hereby make a covenant before you, my people. Wait. Okay. Went too far. One page too many. All right. Uh, to kill them and to consume them. And from the, face of the, from the face of the earth, turn from your fierce wrath, change your mind, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring upon his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain, carrying the two tablets of the covenant in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, written on the front and on the back. The word of the Lord. Within this text, there are three, uh, there are four movements. The people's disobedience, God's reaction, Moses' intervention, and God's final response. So we begin with the people's disobedience. Now Moses was up on the mountain of Sinai for 40 days getting the Ten Commandments. Now, we know that he was there 40 days because we've read the story before. But the people, the original actors, the Israelites, they didn't know how long he's going to be gone. Moses didn't tell them, I'm going to go up on the mountain for 40 days and I'll be back. And so they begin to worry. They become anxious because they no longer have a leader. And they don't know when he's coming back. And so they have this sense of, of foreboding. What are we going to do? They have a frightened sense of impatience. So they turn to Aaron and his brother, Moses' brother, who was kind of the uh, vice chairman of the Israelites at that time. And they say to him, come. Make us gods who will go before us. We don't know what happened to Moses, and so we don't know who will lead us. Their concern here is not the making of gods, of idols. Their concern is one of leadership, of permanent leadership. That's threatened because they don't know when Moses will return. They're saying to Aaron, Aaron, we need leadership, so fashion us a leader who we can follow permanently. Now, Aaron's response is very curious and disturbing. Moses is gone, so he says to them, give me your gold. That's what you have done, right? <laughs> when they say, we need a leader, help us find a leader. Well, give me your gold. So they give him the gold, and what does he do? He makes a golden calf. 
Now the golden calf, or a calf was very common symbolism in the ancient Near East. Most all of the ancient <coughs> Near Eastern polytheistic <coughs> gods had a bull as, uh, and when it says calf, it's speaking of a small bull. That's a, a, one of the gods in their pantheon. Winnie and I saw that this spring in April when we were in Egypt, and we went into the tombs of the pharaohs, and you see all the hieroglyphics, and you see these, these beautiful paintings that are 4,000 years old, and the colors haven't changed. It's just absolutely amazing. You'd also see pictures of bulls. They would be carved into the, the stucco inside of, of the tombs, and they had these big, beautiful bulls there. Well, the reason for that is the bull was worshipped. It was a part of the pantheon of the Egyptian gods. They had a name, and the bull's uh, god's name was Apis, A-P-I-S. And so it was common in the ancient Near East to have a bull that represented <clears throat> God, or a god. Um, and so he forms this golden calf. Now, I wonder... Why did he respond this way? Give me your gold, and I'm going to make a calf. I'm not sure, and I didn't get any help from any, any of the commentaries. It could be that he was a weak leader, and he couldn't stand up to the people, so he caved. Just caved. Maybe he was jealous of Moses. He always wanted to be the leader of Israel, and he didn't get to be that. It was Moses, his brother, that did, so he did a coup. And in a sense, threw Moses out, took over. Um, or maybe he didn't understand the subtleties and the nuances between Yahweh and the gods of the ancient Near East. He may have been thought, thinking like a modern person who said, well, you know, we're all on the same path to God. We have different paths. Now, I'm not the same. We're all on different paths to God, but we all end up at the same place. It's all the same God. So it really doesn't matter what the image is. We don't know what his motivation is. Later in the passage, it's a portion we didn't read, uh, Moses actually asks him, why did he do it? And Moses says to Aaron, what did the people do that led you to this great sin? And Aaron, its answer was just like a junior high boy. <laughs> no offense to any junior high boys <laughs> that are here. But uh, he said, so why did you do this? And Aaron says, well, it wasn't my fault, man. <laughs> I just took this gold and threw it into a fire, and then I came out a calf. I don't know what happened. Yeah. I didn't do it. That's his response. So we don't know why, <clears throat> why Aaron did this, but we'll give him a little bit of credit here because he realizes his mistake. He fashioned the calf to be a leader that morphed into a god for the people. And he tries to walk it back like a, a politician who has said something that uh, wouldn't sit well with the people and realize it was a mistake. In fact, is it was such a faux pas there would be an a, uh, ending to their career. And so they try to walk back what they said. So Moses tries to walk it back. What he does is he makes an altar. And he makes an altar to Yahweh. We know that. He says, I'll make an altar to the Lord. And he puts it in front of the calf, which was a symbol that 
the Lord was the most important because it came before the calf, and the calf then was subservient to the Lord. So he's trying to correct his um, mistake, so to speak. Uh, but unfortunately, it didn't work. The irony of this, well, there's many ironies in this story, but the irony of this story is the Hebrews forfeit the divine presence that they hoped that would bind them more closely to themselves and to God with an object. Now that's idolatry. To replace the animating, animating personal relationship with God with something impersonal and inanimate, an object. Tim Keller, in his book, The Counterfeit Gods, puts it very succinctly. He says, what is idolatry? Taking a good thing and making it the ultimate thing, or making it an ultimate thing. Luther helps us as well. He said these words, Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that truly, or really, is your God. But with Aaron, it was too late. He announced tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord, but the Hebrews already had party in their mind. And what was innocent worship turned to revelry. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. The Hebrew word that is translated revel there means sexual immoral, immoral orgies. That's what was going on. They were copying, copying the ancient Near Eastern polytheistic gods that was a part of their worship and that's what the people did so that sounds strange to us but it's very understandable because we we see it even in modern days I grew up in a Pentecostal denomination and we would have prayer meetings and those prayer meetings would become highly emotionally charged and um, back in the early or the late 1800s there was a movement that was uh, tent meetings, revival meetings, uh, and they would preach. That's where we got the term the sawdust trail, because they put sawdust down in these, these tents and people would come forward for salvation. And, and Charles Finney was one of the big uh, preachers in that day. Now, I want to give them their due. Thousands upon thousands of people. This was the second great awakening in the United States. Thousands of people became followers of Jesus Christ through these tent meetings. But there's something else that went on that historians have looked at these and sociologists. And what they saw was that in these camp meetings, they were highly sexually charged because of, of the deep emotion that was there, the sense of, of, of intimacy that was developed and uh, openness and so on. And I mentioned my Pentecostal background. We didn't, I've never experienced anything where there was anything sexual that happened afterwards. But I know young men who said, I remember one day I said to one of my friends, I said, well, you know, you want to go out and get pizza? And he says, no. And he said, um, there's a young lady who's particularly vulnerable right now. We've been praying. And I discovered something I didn't know that young men were preying on women after these emotionally charged prayer meetings. Well, what the sociologists and the historians have found is that that happened in these early um, revival meetings. 
And it is said by one historian, more souls were begat than saved. <laughs> and another thing they said is the emotional excesses lead to sexually charged atmosphere in which many couples went into the woods. So there's much sexually licensed. So even in our day, we see that. And, you know, I'm not going to labor the point, but I could go through the televangelists. Okay, stop there. <laughs> but this is the nature of human sin. What happens is a good thing begins to spiral into something that is not healthy and helpful. God is watching this whole experience where the people went to worship and they ended in orgy. He's watching it. So the second movement is God's reaction. Now, the author is speaking in anthropomorphic terms. That's what our text is. And so I would say it. God has a gut reaction. God is angry. He tells Moses to go down, but he doesn't instruct him necessarily what to say or do. But we can tell how angry God is because he no longer will refer to the Israelites as my people. He always refers to them as me, my people. And he says to Moses, go down to your people. Like a mother saying to her husband, do you know what that son of yours did? <laughs> so he refers to also this people, as though some ethnic group that's not connected with him. You know, this people. You saw what they did. And he calls them the stick-nest people, which means it's stubborn, like a mule. And he considers they are no longer his people. He's disowning them. He's cutting them out of the will. And he also doesn't want to be bothered. He wants to be alone. I guess he wants to nurse his anger for a while and enjoy it. You ever do that? Fantasize what you would do to that person? Kind of enjoying the anger for a moment? Well, that's what God wants to do, and he tells Moses to leave him alone. And, but he does say that he will, uh, he offers to Moses to change Moses' contract, and he'll make Moses the father of the Israelites and not Abraham. He wants to invalidate his covenant with Abraham. So Moses could have had his own nation right then and there. So we see from the reaction of God, this is serious business. But instead of accept, accepting God's offer to have his own nation to rule, he pleads with God. After God's reaction to the people's idolatry, Moses remains the adult in the room, and he pleads with God not to forget. And so we see Moses' intervention, the people's disobedience, their sin, God's reaction, and now Moses' intervention. And it takes two forms. The first form is he's asking God to remember. He wants God to go back to the original covenant. He says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven, and all of this land that I have promised I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit forever. In other words, God, remember the covenant you've made with your people. And Moses then uses over and over again to God, your people, your people. God, remember, your people. They're your people. He's faithful to God, and he's faithful to, to God's people. Their concern 
overrode his concern. And he says, in effect, look, Lord, you asked us to remember all that you've done for us. You asked us to do that time and time again. And now I'm asking you to keep your word. Do as you say and remember what you've promised to do for your people. Moses also points out, this is the second part of his intervention, that God needs to be concerned for his reputation. It's as though he's saying, you don't want the Egyptians wandering around the neighborhood saying, yeah, well, you know that Hebrew God that thought he was so smart? He took his people out of Egypt where they had housing and jobs and plenty of food. He took them out into the desert to die. Not too smart, that Hebrew God. He's saying, God, you need to be concerned about your reputation in the world. And we come to the final, most important point in this text. For those of you who were here last time I preached, and a few of you were, you may remember a phrase that I said was very important, and it's repeated over and over again, particularly in the Psalms, about God, that was very important to me. Anybody remember? I bring it back again because I didn't expect you to. <laughs> but I want you to. And that is the phrase that said over and over again about God. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Uh, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So God doesn't destroy his people. He relents and changes his mind. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. And so we move then to God's response. And in his response we see two endearing words of grace. The first enduring word of grace is the faithfulness of Moses. He's not only obedient to Yahweh, he's willing to give up his own salvation for the people. Moses says to God, and this is later in the text, please forgive their sin, but if not, blot me, and if not, blot me out of the book that you have written. In other words, he's saying, listen, I'll give up my very life for these people. That, my friends, is a value that we can emulate. It is also leadership that is solid and strong. That's a value that we can hold on to. Moses is faithful to his God and to his people. And he prays, as we saw, for God to change his mind. The second word of grace is God's willingness to forgive. This text illustrates the divine grace, that the divine grace doesn't come easily or cheaply. It costs God. We see within the text a struggle within God because his first impulse is to obliterate these treacherous people. And the word there is to consume. And when I read that, I thought of all the pictures that we've been seeing of Santa Rosa and the Napa Valley, of these vast tracts of, of homes that are simply obliterated. And there's nothing there. We were talking to a friend, Dave Wirth, last night, who, who was pastor at... Uh, Malibu press when they had the fire back in 94, 93 and, and he did a lot of work with the people and it was a tremendous help uh, and he was telling us about 
what happens in those fires, how cars will simply be a puddle of metal. There's no car left. There's just a molten metal left because the fire is so hot. Anyway, so it came to my mind of seeing those pictures of the tragedy that's happening in those wildfires. That's the sense that God, that's what God's going to do to these people. Obliterate them. But he relents. We see the struggle. We see his first impulse. But instead of giving in to his full impulse, there's an equal and opposite emotion pulling God to let his gentler nature, nature rule, to show his mercy, his slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love sign. And that is the essence of the gospel. The gentler nature of God wins on the cross as God, the creator of heaven and earth, the redeemer of the world, the sovereign Lord of history, took on human flesh in Jesus Christ and took our sin upon his body on the cross so that we would not have to suffer the consequences of our sin. He bore on the cross in his body our sin. Moses persuades God to do what God really wants to do, to forgive and not to condemn. And so these two words of grace, the faithfulness of Moses and the forgiveness of God come together and they are for us because all of us have made golden eye calves in some form. We all take good things and make them into ultimate things. Think about your life for a moment. What good things have you made ultimate so that those things have become idols? The great news is that for us, the Lord our God is slow to anger, abounding in love, and desires to forgive us our idolatry. What we need to do is admit that we have idols, turn to God, and we will be forgiven. Glory to God.